Good morning, and Marcus, thank you. I uh, couldn't have said it better myself. I think Marcus was a uh, medical student when I started in Baltimore, and I've uh, been able to follow his career uh, uh, after medical school and into Temple. I mean, there's a little history with Temple and uh, uh, Dr. Kanev uh, being there, as well as my brother, uh, I think, was on faculty at Temple when you were a resident. And uh, we would always, I always kept an eye on your career. So. Uh, uh, it's good to see that you've you've earned your stripes, to say. Um, and it's a you know it's an honor for me to be here uh, and really just to discuss um, you know head shape abnormalities. And as Marcus said, you know I it's interesting. You know I'll say my disclosures. I have no financial conflicts. A lot of the photos that we have I have consent or are from Google Image. And the biggest disclosure I will say is I am not a craniofacial surgeon. Okay, um, uh, in Saint, when I moved to uh, St. Petersburg uh, about two years ago, after spending a dozen years in, in Baltimore, um, I found uh, uh, that there was a need uh, for a head shape clinic. We, they did have a craniofacial clinic with all the specialists uh, that met once a month. And when I got to St. Petersburg, and I was doing all these screenings of the referrals for both neurology and neurosurgery, I would be. It was in. It was. The, it was just overwhelming. The sheer number with uh, for referrals from the community with head shape abnormalities. And one of the things that I'm able to do in my new role as a director was to realize that there was a need to create a head shape clinic. And uh, I, cr I created this head shape clinic that met weekly, uh, and uh, certain months uh, met five times a month. Um, just to try and streamline the access uh, uh, for, for the community uh, for any child, uh, infant, child, adolescent that had a concern of a head shape abnormality, and it's been a success. And I just want to share with you uh, some of my thoughts on head shape, uh, craniosynostosis, as well as plagiocephaly. I can get this. So, you know, when we when I talk, you know, when we talk about head shape, I mean, it's just it covers the whole gamut from plagiocephaly to syndromic craniosynostosis to the single suture uh, to the uh, the rare and unusual lambdoidal synostosis as well as the, the ridges, and it's incredibly common. And it's I, I want to say it's an epidemic. I mean, if you look at some of the uh, the data. Um, you know, it's as high as 40% uh, of infants will have that. And, you know, what, are, what do I think are the head shape concerns uh, that, I, that you as pediatricians may think are the most concerning? And when I look at it, really, you know, it's, uh, it's the referrals were closure or delayed closure of the fontanelle, head size, microcephaly, macrocephaly, head shape, whether it was craniosynostosis or the positional head deformity, uh, what to do, uh, how to differentiate between the two, how do, how should, how do I treat or how do we treat uh, plagiocephaly and how do we treat uh, craniosynostosis? So I, I'll try to go down this outline uh, in an organized fashion. And I think, you know, one of the biggest referrals I saw was premature closure of the anterior fontanelle. And it's interesting because you know, when the parents would come in, it was like an emergency. It was as if, you know, the world was gonna like blow up because that, that infant's uh, fontanelle was closed early or was delayed. And I think, you know, what we have to recognize is that, and this is in the, from the pediatrics uh, literature, some of these fontanelles, anterior fontanelles, are gonna close at three months of age. Um, you know, then the other is another 10% will close by six months 
uh, more about the remaining half are going to close by about 12 months, but you can have some fontanelles that are still open at two years of age. Um, and you know, is that is that a concern? Should it be a concern? You know, when you look at the the fontanelle closing early or being small, it could be normal. It could be a, a underlying primary microcephaly, uh, as seen here. Could be secondary to uh, brain injury or hypoxia, uh, secondary to uh, a traumatic brain injury. Could be secondary to hyperthyroidism, holoprosencephaly, um, as in this child. Yes, it could be from craniosynostosis uh, as well. And I think the key, um, the other one is a metopic bridge can claw, uh, lead to premature closure. But overall, early fontanelle closure is really, really associated with craniosynostosis if the head shape is normal. Um, so, you know, it really should be rule out all that, and there's really should be no referral uh, that would be necessary to a surgeon. The other one's the large anterior fontanelle or the delayed closure. Again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, a small number will, cl will close uh, by about two years of age. So it could be a normal variant, it could be familial. I think that's the key, you know. If you've got someone with a macrocephaly, a big anterior fontanelle, you know, and you feel it, if it's not bulging, tense, and the sutures aren't displayed, um, you know, look at the, look at the parents. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, in my head shape clinic, I love to see both parents. Um, and uh, sometimes I will take out the tape measure and measure the father's or the mother's head just to show that, hey, it, it's probably familial. And then, then they'll say, oh, you know, more, more likely than not, they'll say, oh, on the dad's side, they all had big heads and couldn't fit. So I mean, just little questions like that can stop the alarm for the families. The other, you know, which I must say I have never seen um, hypothyroidism uh, uh, leaving the anterior fontanelle open. I think it's so uncommon, uh, uh, but uh, you, you, need, you may need to do it. Some of the uh, uh, trisomies can be associated with it. Achondroplasia is another entity where the fontanelle remains open. Uh, rickets, some other skeletal dysplasias, dysmorphic syndromes, uh, chromosomal abnormalities, and some drugs uh, uh, such as Dunlatin and some of the other uh, antifungals uh, uh, can cause it. Malnutrition or IUGR uh, in utero. And then, you know, what is the most important? It's that you notice I put the increased pressure at the very bottom. Yes, you do have to worry about that, but if the fontanelle is open and you, it's soft and it's pulsating nicely, the, suit, the other sutures aren't split, the chances of having increased intracranial pressure is very unlikely. Um, what I would recommend for these is, you know, again, neurology, genetics. If you're concerned about ICP, I think, you know, that that's where neurosurgery consultation is indicated. Uh, but really, it's a very rare uh, that that's going to happen. Um, and, you know, if you're worried, MRI will show the hydrocephalus. So, uh, you know, this is uh, an algorithm that is not even, it's in the pediatrics literature in terms of, you know, what to do with the large fontanelle, small fontanelle, um, looking at the, you know, what is the head size and shape, you know, look, is it, is if the head shape is dysmorphic or has a funny appearance, then I think it warrants a, a referral to the head shape clinic. Um, if uh, there's any other developmental delays that's associated with it, then, uh, you know, typically neurology or genetics uh, uh, to rule out some of the uh, rarer uh, etiologies for it. And then 
um, if, if it's persistent and uh, other child's otherwise normal, it may be wise to get some uh, blood work uh, to rule out some of the uh, systemic indications. So I think that's you know, my approach on fontanelles. Um, you know, let's talk about head shape. Um, and I think, you know, what, what, what can we say? Uh, you know, the head size can be small in craniosynostosis. The head size is probably, most likely, more likely than not, is not going to be small um, in most cases of craniosynostosis. The, you know, the, the exceptions, I think, are the pan-sutural uh, craniosynostosis, kids that all their sutures are closed for some uh, reason. Those are the kids that are going to have a small head, but most of the time, um, with craniosynostosis, the head size is going to be normal. So if you, if you measure a small head, don't automatically assume that it's craniosynostosis. It's unlikely to be that uh, because most of the kids I've ever measured uh, with craniosynostosis tend to follow the curve or sometimes uh, they're be it above the curve. And the reason for that is, you know, with here's the growth occurs perpendicular to the sutures. If one suture is closed as the sagittal, you're going to see growth that occurs along the uh, remaining sutures as in this illustration. And I can't show you for some reason it's not pointing, but uh, along the coronals as well as the landoids, they're going to compensate to keep that head size uh, normal. And I think, you know, when you look at the, the skull growth is determined by the under, underlying brain. You know, you've got multiple formulas. If you look, if you consider the head as a sphere, um, you know, the formula for that is looking at the, uh, at the, lar the long diameter measured by the short diameter, by the depth, and you can get, you know, look, if you compare it to a pool and then you'll get the size. If you look at a round pool, it's really the same thing, the same amount of measurements that you're going to take. And really, you know, round head, long head, in terms of the volume, it's going to be about the same if, you, if we just think about it as a pool. So let's uh, now really, you know, let's just turn over to the head shape abnormalities. And I think this is, this is it, you know, craniosynostosis uh, versus positional head deformity or positional plagiocephaly. That is about, um, I'd say that's 80% of the referrals that we get to the head shape clinic. And of those 80%, um, you know, what do you think the number of craniosynostosis children that we see? I mean, I know John, uh, Paul, and uh, Marcus will tell you, you know, you can count them almost on one hand. Uh, um, you know, with our head shape clinic that meets weekly, um, we tend to see, some, let's say we average about 25 children in the day. Uh, the chances of us getting a, seeing a craniosynostosis is maybe one uh, every other clinic at best. So just, you know, if you look at that and do the math, most of them are going to be, you know, positional plagiocephaly uh, that are referred to the clinic. And, you know, we, and, and the, the, we set up the clinic to comfort the parents uh, as well as our local pediatricians uh, so that they would have easy access to us. And we are fine seeing the plagiocephalies, but you know, I'll, I'll, for me, I'll just give you what my basic understanding of craniosynostosis. And as I said earlier, you know, my disclaimer is uh, I haven't done a craniofacial case in two years since I've been at St. Pete. I did them when I was in Baltimore, and I was doing all a fair amount of craniofacials. Um, uh, but what we developed in the clinic is we've got uh, I have three other partners. There's four of us. And we've done, again, similar here, we've got subspecialization, and we have one partner that does all the head shapes, uh, all the craniosynostosis or the craniofacial surgery. 
We all do the clinic, but we all bring them down to one surgeon uh, just because we feel that's the best care uh, for the families. And the reason, you know, that in return, uh, we all volunteered to do this clinic. Otherwise, uh, these children would have been coming up into our individual clinics uh, that uh, a lot of us had subspecialty interests. And uh, by doing, meeting, uh, doing all in one clinic, spending the day, we're able to see more, alleviate a lot of the concerns, and expedite the care of these uh, children. Because there, you know, there are some uh, relatively new, not, not relatively new, but there's some minimally invasive techniques that Marcus has brought here that if you get to these children early, uh, can shorten their stay as well as the associated risks. So again, you know, I think when you look at it, the growth occurs along the sutures or perpendicular to sutures. Um, and when you think of Verkhaus, uh, who was an anatomist in Germany, early 1900s, you know, he said that the growth occurs perpendicular to the suture. So if one suture is closed, uh, there's not going to be growth this way, but they'll have growth along the other sutures, which will compensate for that child's head shape. And if we look at this, the center being normal, the most common is going to be the sagittal synostosis with the closure of the sagittal suture. Um, we call that scaphal selfie. The next uh, probably most common, or the second most common suture that closes is gonna be the metopic suture. And these are the children that we would consider that have trigonocephaly or that pointy uh, uh, head, and I'll show some pictures. Then the others are your bilateral coronal, uh, brachycephaly or the unilateral coronal. Um, and this has always con confused me. You know, we call it a unilateral coronal, it's anterior plagiocephaly um, is what it is in the literature as well as uh, in the European. Um, and then if the lambdoid is closed, uh, uh, you know, we'll call that posterior plagiocephaly. And if it's just deformational or, uh, uh, you know, we'll call it deformational or benign posterior plagiocephaly. So this plagiocephaly, I think that term is very confusing and, you know, I tend to reserve plagiocephaly for the positional and then the others will just call by the suture that's closed. Um, so I think you know that's uh, very important to know. So again, the most common one that you, sh you will see is that sagittal suture uh, closing or that scaplocephalic appearance. And these children, if you look at it, here's the suture that's closed. When you look at them from the front or from the side, they're gonna have a long and narrow head, almost like a football. Um, and they're gonna have compensatory growth along the, the, the coronals as well as the lambdoidals, and they're gonna have frontal bossing, and sometimes they'll even have a prominent occiput. And if you look at this, here's the normal child, here's the sagittal suture that's closed, and depending, you know, this suture closing, um, there's a misconception that the suture, the entire suture closes. It can close in parts. You can have closure of the anterior sagittal suture. You can have closure of the posterior. And sometimes you can have closure of the entire. And depending upon what portion is closed, you're going to see that it's going to be narrower in some areas, whether you have the frontal bossing or the occipital bossing as well. And you know, this is a classic appearance. I don't know if it projects as well, but uh, over here you can see it from the top. 
Uh, you can feel this ridge, but if you can't feel it or uh, visibly see it, you see how long the head is and how narrow it is. Um, and uh, here's another infant from it. So when I look, when we see these, I mean, the first thing that we do, and you don't need an x-ray to make this diagnosis. I don't even recommend the x-ray. If you see this, if you suspect this, you know, just send them to the neurosurgery team because let them worry about the x-ray um, or even the CAT scan. And a lot of times, you know, I can tell you when I was practicing on these sutures, uh, the craniosynostosis, stenosis, I, we would do surgeries without any imaging, no x-ray, no CAT scan, uh, uh, if it was a classic appearance. The only time I would get a CAT scan and I wouldn't even get plain x-rays was really if I had, bio, for the syndromic children or the, or the children that had multiple sutures uh, that were closed uh, and the concern. But I, I mean, what I recommend is looking at that child uh, straightforward and then standing up and looking at the child from the top and looking down at that head as seen in this image, and that'll give it away what the diagnosis is. Because as I said, yeah, this is 90% of what you're, of all craniosynostosis, this is 90% of, it's gonna be the sagittal suture. I think the confusion uh, comes up, is it craniosynostosis versus this toaster head child? And I think, you know, what, what you should recognize is really sagittal synostosis, they're born with it, all craniosynostosis. It's present at birth, this toaster head is really, the, it's a condition that, that we've seen with the premature infants. It's not present at birth, uh, but it occurs because they're premature and they're laying in their incubator or their bed or uh, for many uh, hours at a time and not being moved, uh, uh, whether because they're innovated or they're uh, too weak to lift up their head. So these children with craniosynostosis are not uh, are born term. Uh, you feel the ridge along the sagittal suture. There's no ridging uh, with these uh, premature children. There will be frontal and occipital bossing as seen in this picture. And with the toaster head, there's really no frontal or occipital bossing. It's, it's, you know, this is a positional uh, deformity that, that you know, I, I try to consider uh, uh, with the toaster heads. And no surgery is required for those, uh, whereas the sagittals do require surgery. So let's look at the, you know, the, the next one that you're going to most likely see is that trigonocephaly. And that's uh, the premature closure of the metopic suture. And what, what you see is that keel-like appearance um, on, of the frontal forehead. It looks like a keel on a boat, so it's very important. You can see it here on this child. You can sometimes feel the ridge, but you can see that there's flattening and a keel of, of the forehead as well as some hypotelarism that's associated with this. Um, and there, there are, and this is, you know, again, it's a spectrum. You can have it as a metopic ridge where it's just a palpable ridge and sometimes the fontanelle is closed early, um, or it could be the more severe with the, with the, uh, the associated deformity of the forehead as well as the associated bone. So, you know, again, there's a spectrum of this uh, closure. I can tell you, that the ridge, I have never operated on a ridge. I've offered surgery to every parent, though. And everyone's turned me down on it, which is a good thing. Um, and, you know, if you, as you see this child, it's a, it's a prominent ridge as in this infant. And it's interesting, you know, I always tell them, look, if, if they've got a normal head shape, I and surgery's not going to make them better. The only thing I've offered to do is to, to do a, an incision and to shave it down and make it flat. Um, and I'm like, even if I did that, I don't think I'm going to make it look any better than it is now. So 
fortunately, every, I, you know, families come in thinking that they need surgery. I'm like, well, I gotta offer you something. So I'm gonna offer you to drill this down and not one family's ever taken me up on it. I'm, fr I'm afraid if I do, if one family does take me up on it, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do because I really don't recommend it. But uh, I do say that because they're seeing a surgery. Whereas, you know, these children definitely need uh, a surgery. And with that said, I can tell you that uh, I have three children, two boys and a girl. Both my boys have a metopic ridge and their mom doesn't know about it because I've never told her about it. <laughs> so that's, that's a good thing. And, it's, and we'll keep it that way, no one tell her. Uh, and every now and then she'll say, geez, why are you feeling their forehead? I'm like, oh, nothing, don't worry about it. <laughs> and their pediatrician hasn't noted it yet, but um, again, no surgery. And then the severe cases, uh, the surgery, it's a spectrum. Um, get, let's, you know, let's look at the, you know, the coronal sutures, whether it be the unilateral or the bilateral coronal. This, I think, aside from, you know, again, it's going to be obvious when you see these uh, children. If you look at this, when one coronal suture is closed, you're going to see that that, that forehead is retracted. The, uh, the contralateral side is more prominent. You can see, as well as the eye, the globe is going to be what we would consider the brow is going to be elevated. Uh, there's also a nose deviation, and we call this a harlequin sign uh, for the eye and the orbit that you can see here is larger because it's being retracted and full of pulling back as compared to the contralateral side. And again, with the nose deviating away from it. With the bilateral coronal, again, they've got even a more classic appearance. And that, it, you know, it's like their whole forehead's flat and pulled back and their eyes are almost uh, ready to come, pop out of them. Again, you know, again, I think it's very, these craniosynostosis, you, when, you know, I can tell you that for me, when they're walking into the door, I can tell the diagnosis, whether they, which craniosynostosis they have uh, and whether or not they're gonna need surgery before we even take, uh, uh, before we even take the history. And I think, you know, the one thing you can't—it's rare—but you can have multiple sutures that's closed, and I've seen it. They can have a sagittal with a long and narrow head, um, as well as a mid-topic, as seen here in this child. So, you know, this little boy had his whole uh, midline sutures, the mid-topic and sagittal, closed. So he's got the classic appearance of a mid-topic, as well as the uh, uh, the, the scapulous uh, appearance. And you know, most of these multiple suture closing will need uh, surgery. Uh, brief mention on the syndromic, and yeah, it's not Michelle Pfeiffer, but Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer syndrome. Really, the, the diagnosis that most commonly of the syndromic is going to be aperts or croissants, and this is you know typically bilateral coronal sutures. Uh, you know, these kids have a classic eye appearance. Um, I've seen some of these eyes are they're so. Uh, the, the sutures are so close, they've also got the mid-face abnormalities that sometimes these eyes are actually falling out when they're, being, when they're born uh, as infants and uh, something needs to be done immediately for these. Um, and the, really the distinction between aperts and cruissants is the syndactyly that's uh, uh, seen with the aperts uh, as compared to the cruissants. The last suture uh, is this lambdoidal, uh, uh, or this posterior plagiocephaly. Lambdoidal synostosis, uh, I will say, is the rarest. In my career, I want to say I've seen four in about 20 years. John, Paul, I mean, how many would you say you've seen? 
Yeah, it's it's so. I mean, you know, because the, why is that important? Because you know, that's that you, you've got to distinguish the lambdoidal synostosis from your positional plagiocephaly. cephaly. Uh, just to share with you how rare it is. I mean, I've seen, as I said, I've seen four in uh, twenty plus years. Uh, um, so you know, I can remember each one of these children um, because you know the biggest concern for you is that positional plagiocephaly. Is it plagiocephaly? Is it is it positional, benign positional deformity, or is it the lambdoidal synostosis? And you know, here's some. You know, when you look at the suture that's closed, um, you're going to have uh, the compensatory growth on the contralateral side, um, as well as the, there's going to be some. Uh, um, it's going to be a head tilt, and then the, the key is, if you look at this, is the ear. And I always look at that when you're looking from the top down. With lambdoidal synostosis, because there's no growth on that, you get compensatory growth on the other side, the ear is actually shifting back, and that's very important. The ear is going to get pulled towards the suture that's closed, as seen here. And you know, the, why is this important? Because it looks a lot like the positional plagiocephaly. And when you look at it, let's, you know, we'll look at, the, we've looked at the lambdoidal. Let's look at the positional. And this is a positional. Again, you know, when you look at it, if you look at it from the top and you don't see the ear, you can see that there's, you know, there's the flattening, flattening. Um, you know, I always try to look at the ear to try to get an idea. It's, you know, I look at it like a parallelogram with the positional plates itself. If you, if you look at them from the top, as it's being flattened on that side, it's also pushing the ear forward. That's the key. Positional plagiocephaly, ear is going to be pushed forward. Lambdoidal synostosis, the ear is going to be pulled back towards that side. And, you know, that really is uh, the giveaway. And if you, you know, uh, we can confirm it with an x ray or a CT. As I said, I think, you know, I don't recommend that you get x-rays or CTs, except if, you, if there's a syndrome. This is probably the one, if, you're, if we're concerned about lambdoidal, because I've rarely, hardly ever seen it, if I'm not sure, this might be the only one that I do do a CT scan, just to confirm it uh, before surgery. In terms of the positional, I mean, it really is, it's, it's, it's an epidemic now. I mean, I think, you know, I look at my head, uh, my head um, and, you know, my peers, um, not, m most of us did not have a flat head in the back. And it's really that back to, you know, uh, that back to sleep campaign in the mid 90s uh, that I think has resulted in this where, um, you know, to avoid the SIDS, we've advocated for keeping the children um, sleeping on their back uh, and not on their, uh, not on their face or their tummy. And really, um, it's it, 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 mo unless there's some growth retardation in utero or there's twins, it's typically not present at birth. Um, it develops with time. It can be associated with some developmental delay, the prematurity, big babies, uh, sometimes with torticollis where they're not turning their neck and they prefer to lay on one side. Um, and it's really a cosmetic, um, uh, 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 it, it's a cosmetic issue. There's really no, um, there's no, should be no minimal, no chances of raised intracranial pressure with this, and, and it will improve with time. And the controversy is helmet therapy may be uh, helpful for this condition. So if we look at this, you know, here's that parallelogram that I was talking about. If you look at this, this is positional, and this is lambdoidal synostosis, more with the trapezoid appearance. 
you're going back, you're going forward. Just shift everything forward with the polygiocephaly uh, positional, shift it backwards and flattening with the ear, and that's your lambdoidal uh, synostosis. And here are the images uh, for this. And again, sometimes you can feel the ridge um, with, for these children. And one of my partners called this the gumbo head uh, appearance uh, for, for children. So I, you know, just to summarize, positional plagiocephaly, very common. Uh, the incidence of lambdoidal is one in a million, and it's true. I mean, like I said, um, uh, four in my whole career, so I'm always, um, you know, uh, head shape when everyone's saying, you know, it's a posterior plagiocephaly, uh, I'm more suspicious for positional plagiocephaly rather than the lambdoidal synostosis. Ear is going to be pushed forward, ear is going to be pulled back, it's going to have a ridge, almost a gumbo, gumby appearance. This diagnosis is made by exam, rare, very unusual to get an x-ray. Um, sometimes, you know, for the lambdoidals, if we're not sure, we will do a CT scan just to confirm the diagnosis. And it's important and a very time-sensitive issue. The positional, it's cosmetic. Craniosynostosis, again, it's going to be cosmetic. Positional does not cause elevated ICP. Uh, Craniosynostosis, there is an incidence with a single suture of about 10, maybe 15% chance of raised intracranial pressure. Um, it is higher with the multiple suture closures or the syndromic. Positional will improve with time. Craniosynostosis does not improve with time, uh, regardless of what you may do. Helmet repositioning, it will, uh, it will continue to get worse as the head grows. No surgery for the positional and uh, recommend surgery for the craniosynostosis. Um, helmet for positional. Um, for craniosynostosis, if you do it minimally invasive, we advocate the helmet um, so as it's very important. And they're both very time-sensitive uh, referrals. And the reason for that is if you're gonna make an impact, uh, you wanna get to these uh, children early, and that's, again, the head shape clinic. So, you know, what is the treatment you know, that we've rec what I recommend or we recommend for positional plagiocephaly? And here's another disclaimer, and I've, I've gotten burnt several times. I've seen children that were referred for positional plagiocephaly. Uh, they've had the, the back, the occipital region completely flat, and I was a young, I was just young, starting my career in Baltimore. I come in, I'm like, wow, that's really flat. We need to do something. And the parents looked at me and said, what are you talking about? We like that appearance. We want that appearance. So the parents actively positioned that child to develop that flat appearance in the back. And it's an ethnic thing. So, you know, now I've learned, and it happened twice to me, uh, different ethnicities, um, and they both were referred to me for head shape when I was in Baltimore, I'm like, oh, you know, we really need to do something, let's reposition, consider a helmet. And they looked at me like, what is wrong with you? We did this on purpose. Don't you know uh, about our background and stuff? And again, both were very different ethnicities as seen here. You know, if you, uh, if, you, know, you look at it, this is uh, from the, you know, the, the, the Chinook tribe uh, when Lewis and Clark came, uh, came and they realized they saw some of these infants that were placed in these wooden boards and you can see here that they're trying to flatten the 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 the, the forehead as well as in Europe some of these you know princesses 
uh, want to get a prominent occipital region, and they uh, uh, re resulted in, again, just that reshaping uh, as a, a child. So, you know, this, this, this treating of uh, plagia, uh, this positional, you know, it involves multiple disciplines, physical therapy, if that child has uh, torticollis, as seen in that slide, uh, repositioning, um, and if, it, uh, if it's recurrent uh, uh, with that torticollis and uh, unable to improve it, you really need to rule out some cranial nerve abnormality or some spinal anomalies or even some muscular anomalies. And then, you know, the, the helmet therapy, uh, you know, do you use a helmet or do you not? And it's, you know, controversial. And then I will say that surgery is not indicated uh, for these positional. So this is the algorithm that I would use. You know, if you've got plagiocephaly, if the age is less than nine months, physical therapy, repositioning, um, if that doesn't work, I'll go to molding orthosis. If that child's older than nine or 10 months, I only recommend repositioning. I think you've missed the window for the helmet, so I, t I do not recommend a helmet after about nine, 10 months of age. And it's really based on the, you know, the, 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 the head growth uh, charts. Uh, whether or not that helmet's going to be helpful. Helmets, again, yeah, they've been they've been around for 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 centuries. Uh, if you look at it, you know, you can see some of these uh, skulls. If you're ever in the museums and around, um, and it was written, you know, by Hippocrates uh, using a helmet to reshape the head. Now, the question is, are helmets necessary? Um, if you look at this, going from point A to point B, you know, whether it's the blue line or the red line, I'll say the blue line's the helmet, the red line's repositioning, you get to the same point. And, you know, they may, helmets, these helmets molding orthosis may hasten the improvement, but the end result's gonna be the same. Um, and I think that's very important uh, to know. And, if you get the, and, and the reason for that is, you know, uh, this is probably the only uh, randomized control study uh, looking at comparing a helmet or a molding orthosis uh, to uh, positioning or repositioning. It was published in the British Medical Journal 2014, and it looked, it was, of course, it's going to come out of the Netherlands because they're able to do these randomized control studies. It looked at 84 children, and they randomized them helmet, no helmet. And uh, they looked at the outcome at two years. And I think that's a good outcome measure to see what the head shape is gonna be like at that time. So what they only looked at mild or moderate positional. They excluded the severe deformity. They excluded children that had developmental delay. And they excluded children, others that had torticollis. Uh, they looked at them at two years and they found no significant difference in outcome. All right, I'm gonna say that, remember that. And the reason that this paper is important is when you do recommend a helmet and the insurance company denies it, they're gonna quote this paper for you, saying that you've recommended a helmet, it costs, I don't know what the cost is here in Connecticut. I can tell you in Baltimore and in Florida, the cost of treating a child with plagiocephaly with the helmet was around $3,000. Um, and if the insurance didn't pay for it, that was out of pocket for, it, for the family. Um, so, you know, uh, and insurance companies would deny it. I would, you know, even though I, I you know, more likely than not, the families will push me to recommend the helmet. I always told them that, look, 
the insurance company can deny it because there's data that shows there's no difference between repositioning and a helmet. So is the helmet therapy dead? Not yet. I mean, I think, you know, when you looked at that study, it excluded the children with torticollis with the severe, and there are some issues uh, with the insurance as well as the, the methodology. So, you know, let's, uh, why do surgery for craniosynostosis? Uh, really cosmetic, uh, small chance of raising cranial pressure, even though it might not be present at birth, it can occur uh, later in uh, as these children grow up, hard to diagnose. You can see palpedema. You, sometimes we put some pressure monitoring these children with untreated craniosynostosis, and we've been able to document that, that they've had uh, raised intracranial pressure. Um, and it really depends upon the type. M multiple sutures will have more, more likely have raised intracranial pressure than single sutures. And of all the sutures, the sagittal is more likely to have raised intracranial pressures than the others. And we've made advances in the surgery. Just a few slides on surgery. Just, you know, this is the open operation. Essentially, it's a, you do an incision from ear to ear. You've got to peel the skin back. You take off all the bone and reshape it. And if you look at that slide, you know, this illustration, um, you know, how you fix it, I like to call it, is, it's really dependent upon the craniofacial team. And I tend to call it like death by a thousand cuts because, you know, the way I do it is going to be different than the way it's done here, different than my partner's. But at the end result, the end result is always the same. You know, we all tend to uh, advocate that we get very good uh, uh, results with this formal craniofacial. And this is what it looks like with the bone, the bone elevated. We advance the orbits for some of these children with coronal and then uh, reshape the bone with some resorbable plates. That, you know, I think that was then. I think uh, where we are today in terms of modern craniosynostosis is this minimally invasive approach. Smaller incisions, less blood loss, shorter hospital stay, and we place these children in a helmet after we do what, what I would call a suturectomy. Essentially, um, if we get to these children uh, before, you know, some advocate before three months of age, um, you just cut out that suture with, a, with two small incisions and place that child in a helmet, uh, you're going to get a better uh, or as comparable correction as you would with the, uh, the, the, the big formal craniofacial operation. Um, this is just a short video of that um, procedure, the position of the child on their tummy. You can see that the two small incisions and he, this infant's got sagittal and we're just zooming in and just showing you how big the incisions. Um, as that video is playing, I will also share with you that in my time in Baltimore, uh, we were able to do the same operation. Rather than two incisions, we're doing it with one single incision uh, that's actually between these two. Um, so you're able to go both in the front and the back um, and just uh, you're really making it with one incision. So we're drilling a hole in the baby's skull right there, and then we're taking some what we call bone rodgers and just biting the bone uh, away. And you know that, that width of that bone is really somewhere between a centimeter to two centimeters wide, and we want to go the full length to remove it from, from the uh, coronals all the way back to the sagittals. And you can see that here's now with the endoscope, and really the endoscope, and you know, again, the, um, what the endoscope allows us to do is visualization. Here's the bone. We're dissecting the dura beneath it, just making sure uh, that we separate the dura away. And sometimes the dura can be stuck to that few suture. And then we bite the bone uh, away. And I'm going to just fast forward this to see what you get afterwards. And it's both sides. And then 
So here it is coming out, that bone that has been removed. And if you look at it, that's the measure of it. And that's a suturectomy. And uh, just making sure we stop the bleeding, uh, close the uh, incision. And that's what it looks like after it's been closed. And then make sure we put that child in a helmet. So this, you know, uh, really was this early treatment of uh, of this endoscopic treatment was uh, borne out by a, uh, a husband and wife team in San Antonio, Dave Jimenez, who trained at Temple, Marcus, just so you know. And uh, his, uh, his wife, who was a plastic surgeon, found, uh, actually developed a technique that you can do a suturectomy endoscopically. Um, and what are the benefits of, uh, you know, what are the benefits as compared to the, you know, the more formal craniofacial reconstruction is if you get to these children before three months and ideally before two months, uh, the operation is 45 minutes to an hour as compared to the all-day operation. Um, big incisions, small incisions, and as I said, we, we developed it that we could do it in a single incision. Blood transfusion, un very rare, unusual to have to do a blood transfusion. Hospital stay of four to five, six days, uh, overnight stay. I mean, this ch these children get admitted uh, either to the step-down unit. We, we had a protocol that we developed and we were using. We get uh, a blood, uh, we, we do a hematocrit or hemoglobin that night as long as it's fine, no more blood draws. And then we try to send those kids out uh, the first thing in the morning uh, uh, as, 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 you know, so we ensure that they're eating. And the reason we try to send, that we sent them out the first thing in the morning, and, and I did this when I was in Baltimore, is if I kept them any longer in the hospital, um, the pediatric residents would continue to bleed those children and keep checking more blood. We'd keep doing more blood draws and more blood draws because they're watching the hemoglobin go down and then they're like, oh, you need a tra blood transfusion. So we would get the blood drawn the, the, the evening of surgery, no more blood draws. Hopefully none of the pediatric residents saw that and then we'd send them home and then bring them back you know, in a couple weeks um, and we avoided any bl uh, blood transfusion. Um, revision surgery is uh, more common with the bigger operation and less likely to require for the minimally invasive. And again, both are very time sensitive referrals and yeah, you weigh it. And that's why, again, for the head shape clinic that we do every week, it allows us to see these, these children that do have craniosynostosis earlier and allows us to offer both operations, the minimally invasive or the, the more uh, formal uh, craniofacial operation. So. You know, in terms of the head shape clinic, again, the, four, the traditional one's a multidisciplinary team. You can see our team here, we've, we have a developmental pediatrician, two plastic surgeons, dentists, neurosurgeons, all involved in, that, uh, in our monthly craniofacial clinic. And we treat the wide breath, we look at everything, the ears, jaws, eyes, development, and everything like that. In our head shape clinic, really just have a neurosurgeon um, and one of our mid-level providers. And we typically have a physical therapist with us in an orthotist, and that just allows us to, if there's torticollis, they get, they get seen by the physical therapist and get the referral right away. If we're gonna consider molding orthosis, uh, they need to do these laser 3D scans to create the helmet. We get those done in our clinic that same day. They get the initial measurements, and that the, the orthotic company can be working on making the helmet, so the family just has to come back for that helmet uh, uh, when they need it. And we, we, as neurosurgeons, play a more active role. So who do you refer to the skull deformity, um, with the skull deformity? Really, if you think it's craniosynostosis, refer them to the head shape clinic. If it's at birth and does not improve, 
Try to send them before three months, no x-rays, please. If you've got difficult to treat or severe positional plagia cephaly, try some physical therapy and repositioning early before you send them. And if it doesn't respond again, just send them to us. Uh, we're typically gonna recommend the helmet, as I said before, nine months, seven months of age for the severe cases. And if you're not sure what to do, again, just send them to our head shape clinic. So what are the common misconceptions in the last few minutes? Head size is often not small in craniosynostosis. It's extremely rare to have craniosynostosis with a normal head shape. That's true. Fontanelle can is often open in craniosynostosis. And the following do not indicate craniosynostosis if the head is grown normally and is uh, shaped uh, normally, um, you know, whether it's early or late closure, a persistent posterior fontanelle, or some mild ridges along the sutures. So hopefully, and you know, again, I've covered like 99% of what you're gonna see. Positional plagiocephaly, the ridges, and then the sagittal synostosis is what is the most common entities. And when we look at this, going back to those slides, that's what we do see in our head shape clinic. And I have, I'm gonna just, I didn't want to put this in, but we're going to talk about neurodevelopment with this. There's been lots of reports about looking at positional, single suture, multiple suture, looking at neurodevelopment. Does it affect their development? Is there cognitive? Is there psychomotor delays? You know, what are, where are they on the Bailey scale and, and stuff? You know, if you look at studies have been started in the 90s, they still continue today. And really, I think this is one review that came out in 2004 looking at single suture craniosystosis and the neurobehavior. And, and uh, you know, their conclusions were that it remains unclear whether single suture craniosystosis is a cause or a correlate of neurobehavioral impairment, and they're recommending future studies. Um, and really, it is possible that the probability of neurobehavioral impairment depends in part on the co-occurrence and severity of other risk factors, including adversity and stress in the family environment. So this was a meta-analysis of 17 other papers looking at neurodevelopment and craniosynostosis, and their conclusions were as what the other papers were. Yes, you know, it depends what camp. Yes, it causes some developmental delays, or no, it doesn't. And that also, you know, again, holds true with uh, the uh, positional plagiocephaly. So one I just said one slide on it. I didn't want to, I'm not going to answer any questions about that because it's so controversial. So just to conclude, just want to thank you. And again, really, um, you know, the reason we, uh, we, I developed this was to provide good service for our community uh, physicians. Thank you.